Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Paul Gorman, Executive Director of the National Religious Partnership on the Environment. Paul Gorman, welcome back to the New School. Michael Lerner, it's really good to be back at the New School. Now, I'm talking now to my friend Michael Lerner, who has for some time been hosting these various programs, and I thought I might begin our conversation by asking my guest, Michael, to say a little bit about what he hopes to do with these programs. Well, Paul, isn't that kind of you? Uh, and <laughs> before, I answer your, before I answer your question, I'll, I'll, I'll tell our listeners that uh, Paul is the executive director of the National Religious Partnership for the Environment. Uh, which has played a, a seminal role over the last uh, 16 years in uh, bringing the uh, religious community in the United States uh, into a very deep engagement on climate change and many other related environmental issues. In a previous hour conversation with the New School, uh, Paul talked about the development of the National Religious Partnership, how it came to be, how it brought together the Catholic Conference, the National Council of Churches, the Coalition on Environment and uh, uh, Jewish Life, and the Evangelical Environmental Network, uh, which are the main Christian and Jewish uh, uh, communities in the United States who have come together uh, in, in very serious concern uh, for the environment, uh, for creation as a religious issue. So this is a continuation of that conversation. And Paul, you asked me, what was your question? I, I uh, well, because, because I was turning the tables on you just for a moment and just for fun's sake, because this is, among other things, everybody, a conversation between them. Um, dear old friends who've been basically doing the same thing together in different ways for for many years. Well, I mean, beyond being puckish and turning tables, it's, I thought it was a good chance to ask you how these conversations are going and what you hope to achieve with them. And then... Well, that's a great question. And, and uh, these conversations with a new school are really an effort to take the work that uh, we've been doing at Commonweal, which is a health and environmental research institute in Bolinas, California, over the last 32 years, our work with at-risk children, with people with cancer, with physicians who are seeking to return to the heart of medicine and on a wide range of environment and environmental health issues. And those have been very targeted, focused um, initiatives over the last 30 years at Commonweal. And the new school is different because it's really a, a kind of reaching out uh, into the community of friends and colleagues across the country and around the world who are coming face to face with the crisis in, uh, uh, in environment and justice and in planetary collective life and asking, uh, asking ourselves... Uh, what we can do, uh, how we live lives of authenticity in the midst of this crisis, uh, what the impact of living at this uh, unique moment in time 
is uh, on lives of service and on our inner lives. So our little uh, phrase for what the new school is about, we say it's about ecology, culture, and the inner life. And uh, it really goes back to the origins of Commonweal in uh, 1974, when one day I was walking on the Bolinas Mesa and I looked out at this old RCA transmitter facility about a half mile away. Ah, I know this scene well, right. and I know where you're going with this. Right. Great. And I, I had this, this... Yeah, what were you looking at? Describe well, just, it to people. Well, you know, there was, uh, it was uh, late afternoon. I was on a dirt road in Bolinas. Uh, it was sort of waving fields of grass. And a couple of miles away, there was this old white building nestled in some pine trees that I'd never really paid any attention to before. But there was a sort of a, literally a shaft of light coming down from the clouds onto this bathing, this building, so that it caught my eye. And I had this intuition that came out of absolutely nowhere that it might be possible to create a, a center there that would uh, work on personal health issues and would also work on planetary health issues. So really, uh, the last 32 years of my life have been an exploration of that interface between personal and planetary health. Um, and the work of the new school is to really come back to the deeper and broader questions that brought me into the work in the first place and not simply stay focused on the very focused work with cancer patients, with troubled kids, with the environment, with physicians, and so on that we've been doing over the last uh, uh, three decades. So, th and, and also the other thing about it is that living in a small town, a uh, community of 2,000 people, one of the things I really miss is uh, uh, I miss engagement uh, with uh, friends and colleagues like you, Paul, uh, on the issues, uh, sort of in-depth engagement on issues of, of, of very deep uh, shared concern. So the New School is really an excuse for me to call up some friends and, and have conversations with them. Yeah. Well, I, I would add... Um the image of that tower, which was, if you didn't say so, did you, a radio transmitter or at least part of a radio facility? Absolutely. This, this was the place where radio transmissions from North America to Asia began. And it was actually a part of the Marconi wireless network. And, of course, Marconi was the man, the Italian uh, inventor, uh, uneducated in the conventional sense, uh, but uh, stayed at home, uh, educated by uh, his mother and by various tutors in Italy, and uh, began to play with radio waves and discovered that uh, you could translate a voice, uh, you could transmit voice over the radio. And he, he brought that discovery to Britain where... Uh, the Royal Navy uh, realized its enormous significance for uh, naval uh, uh, communications and from there um, uh, created this uh, global network of wireless, um, uh, which uh, the Commonweal site was uh, uh, an original part of. Yeah, and 
wonderful image because you've been, haven't you, in the, not the business, but the vocation of broadcasting um, since you've been there in the sense of planting seeds broadly, yeah? That's right. And in fact, KWMR, which is our, our first radio station that's broadcasting the New School oh, Conversations. Oh, this great frequency. Yes. Uh, KWMR uh, actually uh, has a, uh, a transmitter at Commonweal on the Commonweal oh, site wonderful. for the Bolinas community. So it all fits together. And then one, ad- one additional thing that um, for me as an old radio guy, um, 30 years of... of um, doing it in New York City. Is on WBAI. The, on WBAI. Um, is the, <clears throat> you know, I was always struck by and seduced by the intimacy of the medium because um, we're talking now um, not to an audience um, but to one or two, maybe three people in particular in a particular setting or room, um, times 100, 1,000, 10,000. You're only really talking to one person or two or three people at a time simultaneously That's in, right. in the way that they receive it. So that gives us, I think, um, kind of gives us the medium for the kind of intimacy and reflectiveness that it sounds like you're going for in these conversations. And That's right. You know, it's a wonderful undertaking. How's it going? Well, it's going pretty well, I think. Uh, some extraordinary conversations with uh, Ram Dass, with whom you uh, wrote the extraordinary book in 1984, How Can I Help? Uh, with Parker Palmer, who is really one of my heroes in the field of education. A Quaker uh, activist, a community activist who really took the the secret of the the Quaker silent circles and turned it into a methodology in education uh, with Rachel Naomi Remen, the medical director of Commonweal, whose work on the psycho-spiritual dimensions of medicine uh, has touched uh, so many people. And so a series of, of conversations. Uh, I feel like I'm slowly learning how to do this. Um, That'll and, go on for some time. Don't worry. <laughs> right. So, Paul, I'd, I'd like to come back to uh, to you and your work. And just again... Must you? I, Do well, I get to ask one more question? Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you had to imagine who's listening right this moment, if not their street address, um, who do you think they are and why do you think a conversation like this or others would really, you know, could be meaningful and entertaining. That's important, too. And I think of people driving in their cars uh, around noon in West Marin County on the uh, probably up or down Route 1 or going over Mount Tamalpais, and uh, they're going about their daily lives, and... Uh, they're tuned to KWMR because they like the station. And it's a community, West Marin, all these little towns up and down Route 1 uh, along the edge of the Pacific Ocean in Marin County, western Marin County. 
there's a tremendous sense of, of shared values here. And, um, and what interests me is that as I travel around the country and went to visit you in, in Northampton, Massachusetts, in Amherst, uh, uh, just past Northampton, and uh, traveled uh, through uh, uh, that part of uh, our country, but also I find a lot of places where there are these deep senses of shared values that really uh, have been marginalized by the juggernaut uh, that has held uh, power in the United States uh, for some time now. And um, so I imagine not only uh, people driving in their cars or maybe at home in Western Marin County in these little towns, but I imagine people who are listening to community radio stations in other small communities or even in cities. But I imagine, I see these as conversations that are taking place on the, on the margin of our culture, where there really is freedom uh, still, fortunately, to say what we believe and where it's not... Um, it's not diluted uh, by uh, concerns for uh, sort of popularity or, or widespread uh, uh, use. Profit. Or profit, exactly. So that's who I imagine listening to this. That's great. So it's profit with a PH rather than with an F. There we go. There we go. And well, it's been nice talking to you. <laughs> go in. I've got it. I have to pause for this commercial announcement. Good evening, friends. I'm not a man of religion, but I sound like one, and I've been paid a great deal of money to bring you this message. No, that's as far as I can go. I'm all yours. <laughs> I used to do a radio, pro, uh, a, a religious module in my radio program. I might <clears throat> say, maybe I told you this, called Give Up This Day. No. Give Up This Day. And I did a better voice. And in both senses of surrender and give up. And I was Pastor Flash. That was my name. Uh -huh. And I'd be glad to put him on the phone. Yeah, please do. Let me speak to Shortly Pastor Flash. Shortly I will. Right. Um, and our, the slogan of, of it was, show them a light and they'll follow it anywhere. <laughs> and then we actually had a hymn, which I would get Pastor Flash to sing you. Hang on. Pastor Flash. Robert. Ah, he doesn't. He's sounding little... No, he doesn't want to come, but the, uh, the here is the hymn I'll give to you. Right. Um, it's called O Blinding Light. O Blinding Light, O Light that blinds, I cannot see, look out for me. It's good, huh? <laughs> okay. I'll talk to you. you know, I'll... I think we're doing just fine. Why don't we <laughs> stay in this vein? Oh, my. Hmm. Well, Paul, I, 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 I had all these good questions for you, I'm, but I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> I can't break the mood here. Good. What are we going to do? As, as long as I have license. Sure. This is seriously, I mean, uh, yeah. I guess it's, it's the license that we need in all our conversations to be um, um, you know, vital and irreverent and to challenge one another and to have all the, 
all the kind of yeastiness of uh, you know good jazz and uh, you know and then when I hear you talk about these conversations I know that some of our greatest conversations all of us listening now are, are ones that take place you know in very informal and intimate and, and irreverent and kind of ways where we needle each other and play and I think that's uh, that's a medium for Recovery. Well, that's right. It is. But I'll behave myself. Now. Oh, good. So now you'll behave yourself, and yes. I can, I can, oh. I can ask you my questions. Yes, truly, because they're wonderful questions. Good. So, in our last conversation, we we covered as best we could this um, extraordinary piece of work you've done with the National Religious Partnership for the Environment and the impact it's had on uh, environmental policy uh, in the United States, but much more deeply, it's. Uh, its uh, effort to engage the uh, Christian uh, and Jewish uh, communities in the United States with what the care of creation really means. And in this conversation, I'd like to go back to not only the origins of your own uh, spiritual awakening, but to a heritage that you and I share. Uh, we both grew up in New York City in what I think may turn out to have been one of the, the true golden eras of, of uh, New York. It was at a time when property values were um, sufficiently modest so that a wide range of intellectuals and uh, uh, artists and creative people were able to live uh, in Manhattan, actually. Uh, and uh, it was also uh, just a, a period of time, the, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, where uh, we moved uh, into a, just a tremendously creative uh, cultural period. In that uh, era, in that city, you and I shared another experience, which was that we grew up in families that were half Jewish, half Christian. Uh, and in fact, uh, a friend of ours, uh, Paul Cowan, uh, wrote a book about our experience, and he interviewed my family, uh, a book called Mixed Blessings, about what it meant uh, uh, to grow up half Jewish, half Christian. You and I shared the further experience because not everybody that grows up half Jewish, half Christian is it any real problem for? Because if you don't have a strong religious or spiritual orientation, it can just be sort of background. Uh, but if you have a strong religious or spiritual orientation, then the question of how to be faithful or how to connect to uh, these two traditions that uh, which uh, for millennia uh, have... Uh, been in uh, deep and sometimes very lethal struggle with each other is not a trivial matter. And so I wanted to ask you, um, how did you come of age with this Jewish-Christian background, and what have you made of it? Uh, how would you describe uh, the inner life that uh, enables you to partake of, of both the Jewish and the Christian uh, traditions? Yeah. <clears throat> Boy, that's, um, it is a story, and it's not one I guess I, I talk about that much. 
But as you were describing the cultural and economic um, character of the city in those years, I was actually remembering, and this is because I'm about to describe what is a fifth anniversary, not Sputnik, in the last um, you know ten days or so. Right. But I was three blocks away from pretty much the fiercest battleground of gangs. Uh, This is on the west side of of Manhattan then. The fiercest battleground of gangs and cultures in New York City, which happened to have been recreated and lifted up 50 years ago by West Side Story. Uh Uh-huh and that the Sharks and the Jets, with the names changed, actually did have knife fights and struggles three blocks up from where we lived and where I was told, don't go up there. Where did you live? Um, 81st Street. Mm -hmm. So um, near Columbus, you know. So um, all you had to do was go up three blocks, and it was between Columbus and Amsterdam, and a playground that I actually remember, which is the playground where's that final battle and the, you know, the terrible, uh, you know, stabbing of, uh, you know, of Tony, right? The great, uh, right. So that sense of, and, and it's interesting to say <clears throat> that it were four Jews, Leonard Bernstein, uh, Arthur Lawrence, um, um, Stephen Sondheim, and Jerry Robbins. In fact, four gay Jews, which I think they they were, are, who created this West Side Story, you know, about Puerto Rican and white gangs. Mm. And such was the kind of cultural imagination of those artists that they could, you know, embrace all sides of the city. In it was a revolutionary American opera by one. Uh, was your father Jewish or your mother Jewish? My father, <clears throat> I mean, I had an Irish Catholic dad and a Russian mm-hmm. Jewish mother, which, but I was raised in the church in one of these curious deals that, that Paul went into in, in Mixed Blessings. Um, so I was sort of raised in the Catholic church by, or with my dad, even though by Jewish law, with a Jewish mother, I am Jewish and would thereby have qualified for the Holocaust. So uh, you're right um, to describe um, a certain kind of tension. It wasn't quite a gang warfare, but I know, among other things, that I used to hear anti-Semitic remarks from among my Catholic friends and family, and kind of, um, if not necessarily anti-Irish, but kind of snotty quips about the Goyim and Gentiles. Um, So I never felt entirely at home in either tradition, um, but I was, you know, struck and Passover that my father would be the single most observant person at the Passover table. Uh-huh. And a good Catholic that he was, he understood the deep meaning of, of the Seder of Pesach. Was he a religious man? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, very much so. Mm-hmm. What did he do for a living? He um, was, at that time, actually the editor of the general editor of the great books of the Western world for Encyclopedia Botanica. Oh, extraordinary. 
my mom was a singer in the Metropolitan Opera. Wow. So, um, but I mean, it's such a long, I think the... Well, you said that you weren't ever, and I've had this experience myself, that you weren't ever at home in either of those traditions. So uh, when did you begin to have a sense that, quite aside from having been brought up in the church, when did you have your own authentic personal sense that spiritual life was important to you? Well, I would just say quickly that I don't feel any more at home now than I did then. Um, I feel more at ease with that. Right. This may be true of, of many of you listening now, that there are ways in which all of us have had these different kinds of um, streams, you know, genetic, cultural, and otherwise, that, that compete for our allegiance or that move in us, and you sort of wonder, where am I in the midst of it? So I think the first point was really that I deeply honored both traditions or perspectives as I was introduced to them because there was something inside me that was obviously yearning for a vital you know, spiritual life and very much in my own life with the arts you know, and, um, and the inner life as you know the new school is so nobly named um, so I think it started with respect more than conflict mm-hmm. um, and then um, the kind of question of what do I believe and where do I sit in and if you kind of, because I was raised in the church I think I always thought of myself as well, the, the kind of classic moment of identity is when I was swept into the emergency room of the hospital for uh, for what turned out to be a you know, serious kidney stone and I had to write down, you know, religious affiliation on the admission right. paper and I wrote down the word Christian, mm. which is something I never would have answered. You know, I mean, it seems so formal, you know, mm-hmm. so Christian. You know, somebody, like I'm in a, you know, MGM movie with the, the robe or something. Um, but I think I knew what I was doing, and I think it was... So I guess first comes the the yearning and the interest and the kind of commitment of heart to a you know, spiritual perspective and openness to inspiration and just affirmation. And then it's almost as if the affiliations take care of themselves. You know? And I, it's hard for me to point to a particular time when that happened. You know? When you think of your inner life today... Um is it possible for you to put words around how you relate to not only the Jewish and Christian traditions, but all the great spiritual traditions of the world? Do you still consider yourself a Christian? Yeah, I do. Um, but i got to tell you a little radio story that's partly an answer to this. Um, I was once doing radio program couple of them, um, as you do, on prayer. And we were talking a lot about prayer, this prayer and reading it. And then in the, in the second or third program, I said, you know what would be interesting? It would be interesting if we actually, and I'm saying this to listeners who could call up like you guys can't yet, but um, um, it would be interesting if we could actually pray 
on the air because prayer is so personal and so interior. I mean, how often do you hear somebody pray, even even somebody you know you're you're in bed with, or, you know, actually pray? Like, what do you say? How does it go? Right? And I said, so we'll just take phone calls from people, so they will pray. And but let's take thirty seconds of silence, and everybody hang up, and then we'll make room for. So people began to call, and a woman came on the phone, and she started saying, "Well, I believe that prayer." Blah, blah. And I said, "No, no, 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 no. We we're not talking about prayer. We're actually going to pray on the air. And maybe you don't want to do this, and it's okay." And she said, "Like you mean now? Like should I pray?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is it okay? Yeah. Take fifteen seconds. Take a deep breath. She takes fifteen breath, seconds, and just before I say, no, "Remember now, we're going to pray." Fifteen seconds of silence, and then she goes. Hello. <laughs> and it was so pure, and uh-huh. so universal. Yeah. You could hear everyone in the audience just chilled by the purity of this hello, you know, yeah. reaching out. We'll be right back after a short break. more and more for me um, I, I suppose a, a matter of, of small things you know of noticing what is sacred in like this morning I'm taking a walk and there are all these kids down in the wetlands and there were all these kids going by in bicycles and they were all so different they were all 13 and a red-headed boy and a girl with glasses and you know it was just the beauty of the succession of God's children on bikes, mm. you know, and um, I suppose um, not making a big deal, you know, of one's faith, but just trying to uh, witness life through that perspective and uh, keeping my own conversation with God going forward and, you know, putting, you know, putting out the food for the cats. And, you know, I guess it's a life of observance. Hmm. You mentioned that your mother was an opera singer, and I know she died not long ago. And music has played a, a very central part in your life. Could you just talk a little about your connection with the world of music and with spirit through music?
stuff about my daddy being rich yeah. wasn't true. I don't uh, know. Could that? Could you hear that? Yes, we could. Yeah, was no, that your mother singing? That was a recording of my mom singing uh-huh. Summertime and uh-huh. 60 years ago. Uh-huh. Because she sang both opera at the Met and popular song. And um, she was a New York City street kid. She grew up on 105th Street across town from the gangs in a poor neighborhood. Her father had abandoned her and two younger sisters. My grandmother was a garment worker. Huh. And my mom um, started imitating the Italians in the neighborhood, I suppose. And she was kind of like a Liza Doolittle, my fair lady, who got mm-hmm. swept up and ended up in the, making her debut at the Metropolitan Opera in La Boheme, appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the question of music, I... Um, and this goes to religion, I suppose, as well. Uh, it's, you know, how do we nourish all the faculties of the inner life of imagination, which encompasses spirituality, but also conscience, and also wonder, and also... Um, Name it. I mean, you name it. It's a question for you. You know, when we talk, when you all talk about the inner life at the new school, what are you, what are you talking about? Uh, We're discovering that. Well, you know, got any, got any to report? Um, I like your list: Uh, spirit, conscience, uh, wonder. Um, I. As we're speaking this week, uh, in the Jewish tradition, it's uh, the week where uh, Jews around the world begin to read the Torah from the beginning again. It's, they start with the, actually this, uh, this day, actually. They start with the first chapter of Genesis and, and break the first five books of the Bible into segments that are read through the year. And as the... Uh, as the Jewish year ends and then begins again with uh, with uh, this week's uh, celebration of, of the Torah, of the first five books of, uh, well, of course, the whole Torah, but particularly the, the first five books of the Bible, um, there's this very deep um, focus on, uh, on what's called teshuva, on return. And I think What's that the word again? Return. No, no. I, mean, I think it's teshuva. I may not have the no, I may not have the pronunciation right yeah, because I, right. I don't participate in a community where I hear the word spoken. And <laughs> like you, we're I'm, all orphans. We're all orphans, as Paul Cowan wrote, "Orphans in History." Um, but uh, there's a, a tradition in in uh, in uh, the in the in the Jewish uh, rabbinic uh, uh, storytelling circles that that uh, this return to God uh, when we've fallen away actually brings um, a power that those who have never fallen away from spirit uh, cannot access and that there is a, there is a power uh, uh, for those who have um, been in darkness and returned to the light that they are able to mobilize uh, even the darker aspects of themselves or their life histories. 
And I find that a very powerful teaching. Obviously, I, I am not one who has spent his whole life um, in the light and, and continue to stumble and fall as I walk through the world. Michael. But, <laughs> but in, in any case, in, in addition to spirit and conscience and wonder, I guess return would be yeah, it's a key you know, element I, I, for me. I, in, to universalize this sense, um, one might say that even people in the light sometimes blink, right. um, much less fall asleep, right. um, much less weep. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're going into exile and finding our way back home several times in the course of a single day or certainly in the course of a week, if you think about it, all the times in which we really fall asleep, whether our consciences are dulled or our compassion is circumscribed or our patience, in my case, is falls short, that's a kind of exile. Um, that's a kind of blindness um, at least, by the way, with respect to environment and creation, um, which we started this conversation with, those are moments of of exile um, and um, uh, despair, even, which happen all the time. And in a certain sense, the the word return, which it could also mean recollection, yeah, or remembrance. Um, it's the constantly coming back to what it is that we really believe is most precious and that we most, you know, yearn to serve, you know. And um, I think one good thing about the kind of mixed marriage or mixed blessings or our particular, you know, um, (laughs) the lineage of no lineage um, is the way in which you... We kind of venture forth and then somehow bring it back to whoever it is we feel we finally are. And we have to forge, we have to build our homes, yeah? and as, in fact, you've done out there. Um, and so return is really, um, is really a, a way of describing you know, how we move in and out of, of our challenged lives. I'm talking to Paul Gorman, Executive Director of the National Religious Partnership on the Environment. Noted semi-Semite. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Paul, a related question is, there's a sense around us today as people experience this sense that the world is completely out of control and there's this just inexorable destruction of, of all life and uh, this inexorable movement of, of injustice and, and uh, oppression. And one notices that there are a tremendous number of people, both children and adults, who are actually deeply depressed by living in this period of time. It often makes me ask myself whether there are any pointers to how to live in a period like this without um, succumbing to that depression. 
And I wonder for you personally in your life, uh, how do you hold the, the level of, of pain and suffering that we witness around us in the world without uh, um, just living in the depression that so many people, the anxiety, the depression uh, that so many people uh, manifestly are living in? Well, you know, pretty modestly. Um, the the kind of um, impish or um, I don't know provocative answer is I don't think things are falling apart any more than they have always been falling apart in the human condition. Do you really believe that? I mean, and we I, never had well, the capacity. Well, let me try and defend yeah, it. And okay. I don't. And I don't think that. Anybody is any more depressed than um, we all have been. Now, obviously, one can say back global warming, nuclear war, the whole thing could go up, the whole thing is going up, or the whole thing is going down. And obviously, that is unique. Um, although, any village um, being afflicted by the, by the plague in the 12th century seemed pretty comprehensive and unprecedented, right? And any family um, beset by the death of a child, um, which is not to say that the conditions aren't unique, but only because they are, but only to say that they're not unfamiliar. Mm. And that the answers would seem to be perennial. Mm. Um, In a certain sense, this is why we, you and I and others, kind of seek great wisdom traditions because some way or another, we believe that, that we have all as a species asked these questions and answered them in different ways, and constantly we have to return, you know, to that wisdom which, you know, is part of our, our heritage and part of our hearts. So that's one answer. Um, <clears throat> another answer, I think, is, I think, goes to modesty and there's this great, you, perhaps you know, this great character that Mel Brooks created called the 2,000-Year-Old Man. Yeah. And for those of you who are younger, this, the comedian Mel Brooks impersonated this guy who was 2,000-year-old, and he happened to be 2,000 years old and Jewish. <laughs> Not a half-breed, but Jewish, and he spoke that way. And he was asked at one point whether he knew any famous people, and the guy, Carl Reiner, asked him, and they said, Joan of Arc. No, did you know Joan of Arc? And he says, know her, dummy, I vent with her. <laughs> she used to say, I got to say France. I used to say, well, I got to clean up. You say France, I'll clean up. <laughs> Each of us in our way, her in mine. What a kid, he called her. You know, I loved her. So I think it's important that you and I are save Francers, you know, um, and all of us have the save France mentality um, in one way or another. I think it's very important to clean up. Right. Now, one one piece of of, uh, spiritual life in our time, I think it was uh, Toynbee who famously said he expected. What a guy! What a kid! What a guy! Toynbee said that he thought that perhaps the the greatest event of the 20th century might turn out to be the arrival of the Dharma in the West. And you and I experienced that arrival of the Dharma and uh, for some years were part of a community of people who meditated together at a uh, retreat center called Vaisitos in, in New Mexico doing uh, 
insight meditation. I wanted to ask you, what impact did the arrival of the Dharma have on your evolution as a half-Jewish, half-Christian spiritual seeker? Incalculable. But just on, on, on Toynbee, he said actually two develops. The thing, the first thing you said, the arrival of the Dharma to the West, the second thing he said was saran wrap. He actually pointed that out. No, that was the 2,000-year-old man who said saran wrap is the greatest invention. Okay, <laughs> you want me to be serious. Uh, here's the best answer. I mean, we talked in this early program about um, my work with the so-called National Religious Partnership for the Environment, which was a big, which was a... It's, which was saving France if you ever had to. You're going to you know, save religion in the name of the planet? Talk about you know, vain glory. Um, every single thing that I was able to do in this project, I could attribute to the wisdom and the practice of meditation and mindfulness and that particular strain of, of, of Buddhist practice that you and I have, have shared. Um, I mean, there's nothing that I think that I have done in my mature life that is in any way unique that hasn't been touched and shaped by that. And um, it's really, you know, I, I bet this could be true for you too, Michael. You know, if we had to tell the story of the things that we've done that we really think have mattered, whether they be personal or professional, wouldn't we have to talk about those practices and teachings? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I would put that back to you, you know, if that's true. Like, could you think of, an, of something you're proud of having accomplished, and could you describe it as having been, in one way or another, impossible, other than for the, you know, instruction and inspiration of the teachings? No, I couldn't say anything that I've done that hasn't been touched by that. For me, and what it was, would be? But I guess I, I was saying, like, could you give an example? Well, the Commonweal Cancer Help Program, which I've been doing for the last twenty-two years, was built on the framework of an integral yoga retreat, um, or more broadly, on many of the meditation retreats that we've done, and brought in very much uh, many of the insights of uh, of Buddhist meditation as well. So, but what I could further say is that in my own personal search to find a way to hold my Christian and Jewish roots in faith, it was uh, integral yoga with its uh, mantra of truth is one, paths are many, and its absolutely equal holding of all the great traditions of the world as uh, equal paths to God, equal paths to the light that that was what enabled me to begin to unify the Christian and Jewish experiences. And then, over time, uh, to bring in not only the, the tradition of yoga and the, the Buddhist traditions, but the Sufi tradition as well. So it's really those five traditions that have informed my inner life and that came together uh, out of the direct experience of both yoga and meditation. Yeah, it's beautiful, and I can I see that in your work. And I'm, I mean, one of your great qualities, which makes this, you know, the new school and this program, you know, so perfectly suited, is your tremendous respect and 
curiosity, but respect for the great traditions, but also as refined in your respect for people in your healing work, you know, in, in your ability to really look for what is wise and true and alive in individuals, so too with um, the great traditions. And that, that's a, that's a this great, um, you know, humility and uh, um, a sense of what you're really trying to do with me, even though I'm resisting it, and, and others, which is to sort of bring forth that which may be special and inherent in so many different people and so many different traditions. I, on the other hand, am a minstrel and a stand-up comic, so not so. <laughs> a minstrel, yes. But. Well, as a minstrel, do you want to sing us a song? Do I want to what? Sing us a song. Sing a song. Yeah, well, I already I sang "Oh Blinding Light." You so sang "Blinding Light," but what about you? You're also a songwriter, a piano player, and oh, a songwriter. Yes, yes. Uh, <clears throat> Why don't you sing us a song, Paul? Um, okay, well, I'll tell you a story um, with a song. <laughs> <laughs> Any minstrel does. So I'm invited to the local. How much time have we got? We've got another mm, seven minutes. Okay, well, I, I'll take two. Good. Um, I was invited to a Unitarian church to talk about religion and environment, blah, blah, blah. That was my title. Um, and um, somebody came up at the beginning of the service and described having been called away to um, a friend um, who was having a baby, and it was quite alarming. And she asked for prayers for this person um, and the baby, mother and the baby. And um, then she sat down. And then they introduced me. So I went up, and as I went up, I said to this woman, um, like, how's the baby? Because she didn't make the announcement in such a way as that you could find out what had happened. So everybody was in suspense. And this had happened five hours before, right? And she said, oh, the baby's okay. So the first thing I said when I got up there was, the baby's okay. Mm. And so's the mom. And everybody went, oh, yeah, because everyone heard, you know, the suspense of it. And then I said, so uh, as a, um, I think what we should do to begin this service, maybe this whole sermon, um, is um, greet this new baby. I asked for the baby's name, whatever it was. And I said, so all together, can we very gently sing happy birthday? And 150 people went, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear little baby who was born five hours ago. Happy birthday to you. Mm. And everybody just looked around, and it was like the ultimate hymn, you know? Yeah. Along with Row, 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 Your Bob. Yeah. Mm. And what about one of your songs, Paul? Row, 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 Your Bob. I... You're not going to do that for me, huh? I just, it doesn't, doesn't fit it's for not you. Sort of coming up. I mean, mm. the whole, this whole conversation is our songs. Mm. Truly so. Um, we've got perhaps five minutes left together. Um, anything you'd like to say that I haven't asked you that sort of fits into the moment for you? Um, yeah, 
Yeah, the Yankees are going into a second game tonight, having lost 13-2 to two last night. Mm. Now we're talking nitty-gritty New York. Absolutely. I guess, you know, I, I would come back to what I was asking you at the beginning, which is sort of what are you trying to do here? And um, I just think that everybody who is listening right now is still listening, all four of you right now, um, if we haven't driven you away, is, is um, you know, connected in a very deep and intimate way through, you know, seeking and celebrating and scratching our heads and uh, you know, singing songs. And that, that that connection, like radio, you know, has to be partly a exercise of imagination, you know, of compassionate imagination of imaginative solidarity right and that it's very very important for us to know that we're all here and that we're all sort of doing it and um, you know to bring that to one another you you know what I like about this conversation Paul and you started the National Religious Partnership you began working on it in the early 1990s and 10 years later uh, you were given the the Heinz Award by uh, Teresa Heinz, um, the Heinz Award for the Environment for the year 2000. And uh, uh, Teresa Heinz, uh, John Kerry's wife, uh, in introducing you, said that uh, Paul Gorman has helped change the discourse about the fate of life on Earth and then went on to talk about how you have done that through your work with the religious community. And what I like about this conversation and the hour we did before is that people can have a sense that the, the human being behind the National Religious Partnership for the Environment is not some sort of stuffy, august personage, but this uh, delinquent uh, half-Christian, half-Jewish semi-Semite who's a minstrel and a stand-up comic. Uh, who is is willing to play and who, uh, in fact, has been playing among us uh, for many years. Um, I guess uh, in the last uh, few minutes, uh, one question I wanted to ask that I haven't asked, um, how did you come to write the How Can I Help with Ramdas, and and what was that like? Oh, that's... I was broke. (laughs) And... um my daughter had just been born. Um, how to do that briefly? Um, Ramdas was an old buddy. Um, I, I was, I was no Das. I didn't join uh, him and his gang going to India. I never been to India. I've never spoken. I have not been now. I am not now, or not have never been uh, Indian um, Hindu. Um, Oh, what's the short version? I mean, he wanted to... Uh, yeah, it comes back to something. He went. He wanted to do a book about encouraging service because of the Save a Foundation, which he runs. And he wanted to write a book where we, you know, talked about ways to serve and could we work on that together. And I said, I couldn't do that because I said, you're a teacher and you can talk that way, but I am not a teacher and um, I can't, like, you know take that tone. What I ended up doing was I went out in search of stories of accounts of people of their deepest experiences in 
we called the book How Can I Help? You know, as colloquial as that is, like helping out rather than service. And so I talked to, you know, people in the helping professions, but also to, I don't know, Little League baseball coaches or, uh, you know, policemen in uh, the Bronx. I'm thinking of one guy in particular. And it was really, what is the wisdom that we all have and bring to play in the phone call that any of you might get tonight from a sister who's having a substance abuse problem or a kid or a parent, you know, how do we lift up that kind of helpful instinct and affirm it as something that we all have and want to share? And the book turned out to be, the subtitle was... um, Stories and reflect on portraits and reflections on service. Mm. So we would go back and forth from these little stories that became parables, you know, because I edited them down to reflections on it, which is really what you're doing here, you know. That is true, and we have arrived at the hour. Uh, Paul Gorman, thank you for joining us with the New School. Oh, Michael, it's really it's a joy, and, and all of you should. Uh, Send, send money. It's like you're a public radio station. Send money to me. He's doing fine. And all of you funders are listening to this. Give him a grant. There we go. You can find the National Religious Partnership for the Environment at www.nrpe.org. Paul, thanks so much. Yeah, blessings, Michael. Much love. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the New School.